I'm going to date myself, but I remember as a youngster coming to church and the older men were recording the assembly, the preaching and singing and that kind of thing, and they were doing it on reel-to-reel tapes. And I remember years later, I was at Brother Herschel's house, and we pulled out some of those reel-to-reels of some of those old preachers, and we put them in a reel-to-reel player and turned them on, and as they fed through, you could hear it, and you could hear the preaching, but it was eating the tape up as it went through the machine. So we finally stopped it because we were afraid we were going to damage something that really might be very valuable to uh, to somebody to listen to sometime, and we were going to, you got one shot at listening to it, and we thought maybe we could plug in a digital recorder and catch it as it comes off of it. Um, but that dates me a little bit. We went through the cassette phase, too, and we got past that, too, somehow. So, But welcome. Glad you're here this evening. appreciate it. Uh, if you're visiting with us, we certainly appreciate you and appreciate you being in this assembly this evening. And, and it has truly been a joyous week for Lisa and I to be able to spend it with you guys. I know y'all do this every year, uh, but it really has been a pleasure to be a part of it and a part of the activities this week. I want to continue to talk to you this evening and kind of build on some principles that we talked about last night. And that is building God's house. We've been talking all week long about we're part of a family. We talked about the fact that the family that we're a part of is true in a lot of different ways. We're a part of uh, the family of God, a part of His local congregation. Uh, We're a part of the family of God from an individual perspective. We have individual responsibilities in that family. We've talked about being a part of the church universal, church of the firstborn. Uh, We talked about moms and dads and responsibilities there. We're part of a family in that aspect. Last night, we talked about building God's house. And I want to review a couple of things with you. One is Psalm 127, verse number 1. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain to build it. So when we start talking about building something, we need to have the right purpose behind it. And that is the Lord building the house. And we talked last evening about proper building planning. We even talked about... Uh, code certification, the importance of you knowing what code you're in. We made application to that. So we're in the New Testament. And the New Testament's our authority religion today. And we want to make sure that we're reading out of the proper code. We're not in some other book or some other writings of man. But it, it is, it's God's house. We're in His, His New Testament. And that's what we're using. Chapter 3 of the code in, in house construction, in the physical construction. Said I mentioned last evening to the crowd that I do real estate inspection work. And, and so I'm kind of used to the code itself, the concept of code. And chapter 3 of the code is, it's entitled building planning. One of the very important aspects is to make sure that you're planning properly ahead of time. And that, that if you wait till the very end of a project to figure something out, sometimes it's way too late to figure it out. You certainly want to figure that out early on. We want to do that when it comes to application from the church standpoint as well. And today, tonight, I'll kind of want to build on that same thing, but I want to talk about the foundation of God's house. And in this case, I'm talking about 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse number 14 through verse number 16. He said, These things write I unto you, hoping to come unto thee shortly, but if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. So when I talk to you tonight about God's house, I am talking about the church of Jesus Christ, God's church, God's house, the church that you and I are part of. We make up that church, but that's what I'm talking about. And I want to talk about the foundation. Now, 
I want to go back to my analogy of doing home inspections. Part of what we do when we're looking at a home in, in real construction, when we're really building a house, is we do what's called phase inspections. Sometimes we do them at foundation. We call those pre-pour inspections before concrete's placed. Uh, sometimes we're looking at pre-cover inspections, which some people call frame inspections, but we're looking at the frame and the MEPs, mechanical, electrical, plumbing, rough. And then we're doing a final inspection. So basically there's three phases of an inspection. Well, tonight what I want to do is I want to look at a foundation inspection, but not in the house sense, not that I'm going out on a construction project and looking at the rebar and how deep the beams are, etc. But if I were doing that, I would be consulting the plans to figure out how deep do the beams need to be. How, how is the concrete to be placed? How much rebar are you putting inside the beams? Is a rebar number four, number five rebar? Is there four rebar to a 12 by 24 beam or is it five or six or how, how many pieces of rebar? And where does the underground plumbing come up and are we hitting the wall? It all, it's always bad when you hit underground plumbing in the middle of the living room. You know, it's just not a good plan. And so proper planning ahead of time. And looking at the proper code and what's required. And then we go in and we look at the foundation and we're consulting the plan to make sure that the foundation was put in the way the plan said that it needed to be put in. So tonight I want to do that from a spiritual standpoint as well. And I want to talk to you about a couple of aspects of building. One is foundation and one is structure. Okay, looking at the structural aspect. And I want to do that with the church. We want to consult the plan. We want to consult the code. We want to consult the governing document that talks about it and then compare that to what it is that we're doing today. Let's look at Matthew chapter 7 to verse number 24. And before we get too started into structure, I want to talk to you about the concept of what's taking place with foundation. Matthew 7 and verse number 24. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I would liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And when the rains descended, the floods came, they beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. But whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not, I would liken him unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And when the rains descended, the floods came, and the winds blew, they beat upon that house, and great was the fall of it. Now, Jesus is using an analogy here, and he is comparing an individual listening to the words of God to an individual that is building his house upon a rock. He's building his house on a good foundation. So I want to tell you today, that's what we want to do. If we're going to talk about the Lord's house, we want it built on a good foundation and we want it built according to the plan. We want to be listening to the words of Christ. Let me tell you also something about a wise man building his house on a rock. Notice he said, when the rains descend or the floods come and the winds blow and they beat upon that house, it'll not fall for it was founded upon a rock. And let me tell you something about life. The rains are going to descend, the winds are going to blow, the floods are going to come. And the key is that the house doesn't crumble, that the house doesn't fall down. And I will tell you that that will happen to our congregations. It will happen to us individually in our work in the church. It, there, I'm telling you there is a spiritual realm that Satan is working against the kingdom universally. And I'll tell you Satan's work against our moms and our dads and our homes today. Satan's working. There's a spiritual realm out there. We need not be ignorant of Satan's devices. Because I'm telling you, the rains are going to descend, the floods are going to come, the winds are going to blow. What we need is a structure that's built upon a foundation that can withstand those storms. The storms are going to come. The issue is what, what happens when the storm comes. 
Can we withstand what is taking place with those storms? So let's look at foundation just a little bit. The Bible talks about a foundation in Matthew or in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 20, verse number 22. You're built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord in whom you're also builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. You want to talk about God's house, the church? Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone of that church. And it's built upon the apostles and the prophets, etc. And we look at Scripture and we see the foundation of those things. We see, uh, even in the Old Testament, prophets that give a sure testimony to New Covenant and New, New Testament principle. We even see early prophets in the church that were speaking words and in divine revelation, etc. We see the, the apostles and the, like the epistles of Paul that we talked about when we talked about versions this week. All of those things are the basis upon which we're building the plan of God, the words of God that were spoken through His people and Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone of that foundation. Let's look at some of those things. Ephesians chapter 4, verse number 11. He gave some apostles and some prophets, some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, this is one of those verses that, to be honest with you, if you would look at it in a different translation than the King James, it's probably clearer to you. Because if you looked at this, I think the NIV specifically renders that he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry so they can edify the body of Christ. And that's probably a very accurate rendering of that verse. Do you know what those individuals, the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers are for? To equip the saints. To equip you. That means if I'm sitting in the pew and I've got elders that are teaching, they're trying to equip me so that I can work in the ministry of the church. We too often have this idea of church ministry and church work that, that we've got this idea that the person that's being supported or the person that's in front of us that's preaching or, or teaching or maybe our evangelists, maybe our elders, they have the responsibility to go preach the gospel to the community. I want to tell you, we're missing the boat if that's our idea. We are the body of Christ. And we ought, or we ought to be equipped to minister the gospel to the world. All of us ought to have that individual responsibility as, pe- as members of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. These individuals, I'm not negating the elders' responsibility to go visit sick and, and to teach the gospel and do those things and be involved in the ministry of the church. But it's not just the elders' job to go do that. They also are teaching all of us that we're ministers of the gospel, that we're out there teaching the lost. We're teaching the world about Jesus Christ and His salvation. And we need to be equipped. We need When we're sitting in church, it's not to check off a checkbox that says, man, I made church today, check, you know, church is over, I got that off my list for the week. But I'm actually coming to church to learn to be equipped to be a minister of the gospel so that I can go out there and be effective uh, when I'm working and teaching with uh, others as well. Titus chapter 1 and verse number 5, we do have evangelists also that help uh, from congregation to congregation. Maybe more, we might use a term more in a universal sense. 
Apostle Paul told Titus, For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting. In Old English, the word wanting meant lacking, the things that lack. In other words, if you need stuff to be corrected, that's why I left you. That's why you're here, Titus. And to ordain elders in every city as I'd appointed thee. So part of the responsibility of evangelists is to ordain elders. And part of the responsibility is to set in order things that are lacking or things that need to be organized, need to be taken care of. And elders or evangelists are a part of that foundational aspect and structural aspect of the church. Acts chapter 20, verse number 28 uh, the work of elders. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and, o- o- and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. There is a need in the church of God, in the church of Christ, for good elders. Elders that oversee. Elders that feed the flock of God. You might take the word feed and say teach the church. That's how they feed the church. These are elders. They're in scripture sometimes referred to as overseers. The word presbytery is used in the New Testament also when it talked about Timothy was uh, laid hands on by the presbytery or the leadership of the church. We might also use the term pastor which gives the the indication of a shepherd, etc. that pastors a flock or shepherds a flock. All of those terms would be applicable to the work of an elder. We've chosen a lot of times to use the term elder. We use that a lot. We have elders in our congregation and Those are our leading men of the congregation, our elders, and they feed our congregation. They teach our congregation. They're equipping us for the ministry of Christ. That's a part of that foundational aspect of of that church. It's a part of the, the, the structural aspect of that church. 1 Timothy chapter 3, the qualifications of the elder. This is a true saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop... He desireth the good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous. Lucre there is money, if you're not familiar with some of these old English terms. Uh, dirty money. You wouldn't want elders of the church that were stealing from the widows or stealing out of the church treasury. You would want men of good moral character that had integrity, etc. These are the qualifications of those men. Those are the type of men that we have leading our congregation. Patient men. Not a brawler. Not covetous. Uh, One that ruleth well his own house. Excuse me. (coughs) Excuse me. One that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? And you know, there's a principle involved there that you're talking about a man who has shown by example that he can lead people. He's led his family and it lets you know he's a leader, that he could lead a family of Christians. He could lead a family or a body of Christ, a local congregation of Christ. If he couldn't do it at home, he doesn't need to be doing it in the church. Uh, not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. We've talked a little bit this week about pride, how destructive pride is. That would be awful to have men in leadership that were ego-driven, that were all about them, and, and not see the humility that comes with serving others and recognizing those responsibilities to others. Moreover, he must have a good report of them that are without, lest he fall into reproach. And the snare of the devil. He, it's not just somebody that looks good at church, but somebody even out there in the community that recognizes these are good men. They're good moral men. They lead good lives. They're good people. 
There are deacons in the Lord's house. Uh, if you continue reading there in 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning of verse number 8. Now, I'd just like for you younger folks especially, but all of you to notice that this is the reading leading up to your memory passages this week. The 8 through 13, and then you began memorizing 14 through 16. So the context of your memory passages really starts with earlier in that chapter. Look at the qualifications of the deacon beginning of verse number 8. Likewise must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not giving them much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. Notice mystery is used in your memory verses in verse number 16 as well. A deacon ought to hold the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. Let these also first be proved. Then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderous, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own house as well. For they that have used the office of a deacon well, purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number 11 also teaches us about or shows us part of the structure of the church, part of the foundational aspects of the church, the elementary aspects of how the church is formed, and that is teachers in a congregation. I've heard something this week. I don't know if it's true or not, but I applaud you if, if it's the case. I'm, and what I'm, The elders, feel free to correct me if what I heard was wrong. But I've heard that not everybody at Denton gets up and gives a sermon. Not every man, that the elders here actually expect you to have some training and, and they want to know what it is that you're going to talk about, that type of thing. Is that a very fair assessment or a somewhat fair assessment? That's fantastic if that's the case. Let me tell you why. We've got some congregations in places where everybody just checks the, off the list. I'm on the rotation and et cetera. And I want to show you, I think we have diminished the importance of the role of a teacher in the Lord's church. And if you're a teacher in a congregation, I want you to recognize the elevated status and responsibility of being a teacher in the Lord's church. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse number 11. He gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. It's a part of the fundamental structure of how the church is organized. James chapter 3 and verse number 1, though, I want you to notice this passage. Not everybody's a teacher. May not be their gift. It may be that they're not edifying. There can be multiple reasons as to why they're not a teacher. It may be that they're not, uh, they may not have the qualifications from a standpoint of character and integrity and reputation. There's a lot of factors that go in to who ought to be teaching our people. My brethren, be not many masters. Now we look at that in the King James and we go, master? What does that mean? But that word is very simply a teacher. Not everybody's a teacher. Knowing that you shall receive the greater condemnation. There is a responsibility that comes with teaching the body of Christ. Recognize that responsibility. If you're a teacher in a congregation, study. Study your sermon. Recognize the responsibility. And I would say that if you're a reader in a congregation and you're asked to read the Word of God, read the Word of God. Study it ahead of time. Understand what it is you're reading. I've told this story before. I don't know that I've told it here, but we had a guy in our congregation years ago, very educated guy. I'm not, I'm not saying he was a foolish guy at all, but he got up to read Genesis chapter 9. And he read the entire chapter 
I set my bow in the cloud. And when I see my bow in the cloud, I will remember the covenant that I made with my people that I'll never destroy the earth again by water because I saw my bow in the cloud, bow in the cloud, bow in the cloud, bow in the cloud. He read the entire chapter that way. College degreed individual. Now I'll tell you the rest of that story. After church was over, I met him in the back back area, the entry area of the church, and he put his head down on my shoulder and he said, I am so sorry. I am an IDIOT. Those were his words. I can tell you what happened between those two points. His wife, when he sat down, punched him and said, you're an IDIOT is what, what his wife told him. You know what the real story is, though? He wasn't an IDIOT. The real story is he didn't read the chapter ahead of time and he didn't know what the chapter was talking about. He was reading words off a page. And he didn't understand the context of what it was that he was reading. And I just want to encourage our readers, our teachers, etc. Study those things at a time. I'm not saying anybody can make a mistake along the way and mispronounce a word. Those kind of things. I'm not saying that we're going to be perfect. It's us. I'm just saying take it seriously. Recognize he had not seen the chapter before he got up to read the Word of God. and Or he would have known it was a bow, a rainbow in the cloud. That was a sign that God would look at to know that he'd never destroy the earth again by water. Acts chapter 13 talks about teachers at the church at Antioch. There are five different men specifically mentioned as prophets and teachers. Uh, there was at the church at Antioch certain prophets and teachers of Barnabas and Simeon. There was called Niger and Lucius of Serene and Manaean, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. Five different individuals. And we do, a part of this process is to try to develop others to help uh, with the teaching and teaching the body of Christ so that they can be edified, so that they can be built up, so that they can go do the work of the ministry. There's, there's responsibilities in there. And what an important aspect of the foundational aspect and the structure of the church. Now I want to give you a little bit of a lesson on structure. When I'm doing a home inspection and I go in to look at a house before it's covered up with sheetrock, one of the things, you know, I told you the storms are going to come, the, the winds are going to blow. One of the things we look at in a frame inspection or pre-cover type inspection is we're looking at wind bracing. And that's what I've got a picture of. And I'll show you some of the terminologies related to wind bracing. I'll share one story. It's my number one horror story of home inspections. There's a guy graduated from college with a construction management degree. Again, not it's not that he didn't know certain aspects of things. He was in charge of multi-million dollars worth of inventory. He worked for a production builder. I was doing inspections for that production builder. Part of our responsibility was to train those superintendents as to how to build and what the requirements are, etc., and I went and looked at one of his houses, and, and I'll explain to you some of the technicality aspect of it in a minute, but he didn't have any wind bracing on the house. So I failed him on the house, and, and he calls it back in for another inspection. We call that a re-inspection. We go out for a re-inspection, and he still didn't have his wind bracing right. He was using red thermo T-ply that's required to be nailed every three inches, with roofing nails. And it's okay to staple it too, but it's got to be every three inches with a particular inch and an eighth staple, etc. There's a reason for those requirements. I'll show you a picture of that here in a moment. You don't have to use red thermoply. You can use what's called lead-in bracing. That's what I've got a picture of here. That's a one-by-four that's cut into the studs and it attaches the top plate, the bottom plate, and all the studs and it keeps the house from racking. It keeps the house from 
bending over when the storms come, when the winds blow. And part of what we're trying to teach superintendents is, is when there's a storm, guess where people run? They run to the house. They're going to the house for shelter. The last thing you want is no wind bracing on a house because the storm can blow the house down. There's other aspects that lead in bracing does or wind bracing does is it ties your top and bottom plate together. Now, your rafters are coming in and they're tied to the top plate and that top plate is tied to a stud and the stud is tied to the bottom plate and the bottom plate is bolted or anchored to the foundation. That foundation keeps it secure and you tie it all the way up and make sure that that thing is strong and sturdy and that it can withstand the storms. You don't want it to to bend over when the storms are blowing. That's the idea of wind bracing. There are requirements on that lead in bracing. It's got to be nailed with four nails at the top, four nails at the bottom, two nails per stud, tight joints, everything. I mean, it's supposed to be a tight deal. If y'all have ever seen a storm come through with high winds, wind will hit the front of a house and the wind goes up the roof line and it'll rip. It pulls a vacuum and actually rip the back end of the house off. I don't know how many of y'all have ever noticed that, but some of the reason when people think they had a tornado, sometimes that can happen in a straight wind because it'll rip the back side of the house off because of the vacuum it pulls when you get a high wind on the front side of the house. So part of what you're trying to do is keep that house together top to bottom. You don't want it just not to rack. You want to keep it from coming apart this way as well. All those things are important. That's why you do wind bracing on a house. The storms are going to come. People are going to run to the house for shelter. You don't want a house coming down. The number one job of an inspector is the safety inhabitants of the house, of the structure. So you want to make sure it'll stand through all of that. Now, this particular guy, though, I turned him down. And I'll show you the next picture. There's multiple ways you can wind brace. Here's another way you can wind brace. You can look on this side. That's red thermoply. If it's got green lettering on it, you can use it to wrap a house, but it will not, it's not structural. You can't use it for wind bracing, but red teapot, you can use for wind bracing. Now, normally I draw this out on a marker board on a church when I'm giving this sermon. And today I realized I don't have a marker board. So I went on the internet and I found a picture of red thermal teapot on a house. And I found me one and I've got it built into my PowerPoint now. So it doesn't matter if I have a board. But what's interesting to me about this picture is it's not nailed properly. If you'll notice those staples everywhere, I know this may bore y'all. I apologize if it does, but but it's just little things that intrigue me. I don't know if you can see, but there's a line right here, a line right there, a line right there, a line right there, a line right there, a line right there. Those lines are every three inches, and they're there for a reason. Because if you read the label on the piece on the product it says nail every three inches so they nailed every six inches or every eight inches so i got this beautiful idea of red thermal t-ply that's nailed incorrectly or staple they use staples staples are okay it just should have had more staples in it but the point is this guy my number one horror story this guy didn't have wind bracing on his house and he tried to use red t-ply and he came in the, the about the third trip in, and he used a nail gun, and he nailed number eight siding nails all over it. And just, I mean, ripped it like you would a spiral-bound piece of paper. Of course, that's not any good. It's not going to structurally hold the house. And he, he failed just multiple times, about the fifth or sixth time. I'll be honest with you, I'm irritated. He's wasting time, money, effort, all that sort of stuff. So I'm on the phone, and I said, Leonard, when are we going to get this thing done properly? 
Now, in this case, the specs were every three inches with inch and a quarter roofing nails. Okay? They had to be roofing nails. They had to have a big head on them. So, inch and a quarter roofing nails every three inches. When am I going to get this? And he said, well, I hate to tell you this, Mr. Fleming. I understand he's in charge of multi-million dollar with inventory, multiple houses in the subdivision. He's in charge of it. It's been turned over to him. He graduated from college with a construction degree. And he said, I hate to tell you this, Mr. Fleming, but I don't know what a roofing nail is. Now, i got to be honest with you. After I went, you know, there's several things bothered me about that statement. One is, if I didn't know what a roofing nail was and I had failed five inspections, I think I would have Googled it. I think I would have gone to Home Depot and asked somebody, what's a roofing nail? I think I would have asked one of my compadres that I was working with. I might have even asked my supervisor, what's a roofing nail? I would have never called my inspector and said, I don't know what a roofing nail is. This guy's never built a doghouse. He didn't know what a roofing nail was. Now, I'm not making fun of somebody that doesn't know a roofing nail or anything. We all learn stuff the first time we learn it. But after five fails, you would think a guy would ask. Let me tell you the comparison I want to make to the church. We got a lot of folks that's walking around when we talk about the church, and they're clueless They've sat in church, they've listened to sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon, but they've never engaged in anything. And they're clueless as to what's going on with the church. They don't know, you know, I think I heard a passage sometime, somewhere, maybe, whatever. And all I'm saying is, ask, care, find a compadre to study with, learn, try to figure some things out. I'm telling you, the Bible, the Word of God is a foundation for your life. Most important thing, it'll help you in every aspect of making decisions in your life. But instead, we're building on foundations on sand. We're not wind bracing it. And the winds come and the floods come and they beat upon that house. The rains descend. And it's no wonder we see the destruction that happens when that happens. And I'm telling you, the storms are going to blow. I've seen it congregationally. It's horrendous when it happens. We have lived through some wonderful, good times in the church. I'm telling you, blessing times that are just blessing upon blessing upon blessing. And we've known good times. We've known mountaintops. And all I want to tell you is when you're on a mountaintop, you better be careful because Satan is working to destroy good things. And that church needs to have some bracing and needs to have some understanding of what's taking place I tell you, we went through a storm in our congregation several years ago. And I tell you what it made me really appreciate. The core group of our congregation is when the storms blew, they didn't shake. And I'm telling you, that gives me great confidence in those people. I'll tell you a very quick story. I can't tell you all the details of the story, but I'll tell you the quick version of the story. I was driving down the road. I had a guy call me that was going to church with us at the time, but he was not happy and he wanted to create destruction among our church. And he told me he was going to open a can of worms in our congregation that I could not begin to close. That was the threat. And I said, I've got a lot of faith in our congregation. You do what you feel like you need to do. But the answer is still the answer. I have to do what I believe is right and I have to make the call that I believe it's, that needs to be made. And he tried to open a can of worms 
that he could not begin to close. One of the people he called immediately was my brother-in-law, who goes to church with us. And he started ranting and raving about this and tie that and et cetera, et cetera. You know what my brother-in-law did? <clears throat> Very proud of him. He said, rather than listen to all of that and believe it or spread it or whatever, you know what my brother-in-law did? Called me. That night I was visiting with the same individual. Long story as to what the circumstances were, etc. But we were in a room. There were witnesses in the room. And this guy said that I even called your dad today. He called my dad. And I said, what did my dad tell you? He said, if you have a problem with Ty, you probably need to talk to Ty about it. And I went, because that's exactly my dad. I believe that. With all, I've never since even talked to my dad about the issue because I can tell you my dad. My dad is going to say, Matthew 18 says, if you've got a problem with somebody, you need to go talk to the person you've got a problem with. That doesn't work. You take two or three witnesses. If that doesn't work, you can bring it for the church. But trying to open a can of worms up among the whole congregation is not a good plan. My dad would be the first one to say, I can't really listen to this. If you've got a problem with Ty, go talk to Ty. But I can tell you it makes me proud of my dad. And I've got a lot of faith in our congregation, the main core of our congregation, because we've seen the storms. And they didn't buckle into the storms. And I'm telling you, there was full-blown attack. We're going to destroy everything that's happening here. And I'm telling you guys, when good things are happening, Satan's working too. Don't get blinded to the fact of his evil devices. He will try to destroy your family. He will try to destroy your church family. He will try, and you've got to be the members of the church. The structure of the church has to be such. Follow your elders. Follow your leaders. I'll tell you some other things about your elders. They know some things they can't talk to you about. They know things you don't know or want to know, I promise you. You don't even want to know it. I promise you. I wish I didn't know some of the stuff I knew or know. Follow them. Follow their faith, their men of faith. There's a reason why you have confidence enough in men to put them in leadership, to make judgment calls or leadership calls that need to be made. You don't have to know the whole story you can have faith and confidence that these are good men that are making those calls that you don't need to know about. Lay your head down on the pillow at night and sleep well. And be thankful to have godly men that are doing that. I want to tell you one of the greatest blessings of an elder is to know that the congregation is supporting them through some very difficult times. That they're lifting them up in prayer. That a congregation is praying for them and caring for them and loves them and they know they're going through tough times. We had one of the older men in our congregation. One of the blessings in our congregation is we've got some older men that have seen a lot. We've got Brother Bill Outlaw and Brother Ray Price and my dad and some other older men. I mean, they've been in the church forever. They're not elders of our congregation. We actually have some fairly young elders by comparison to some of these older men. But you know some of those older, men's will come, older men will come up to you and they'll put their arm around you and they go, we know you're going through a tough time. We're praying for you. We're behind you. We're thinking about you. Keep walking. We know this is tough. They know it's tough. I can tell you why. Because they've seen it before. They've seen tough. just want to tell you, the storms are going to come. The winds are going to blow. The floods are going to come. And you want some wind bracing. You want some people in there that have nailed it properly, that understand what's going on. The components of the system are strong. 
And what a strength that is to the group, the core of the group. And I'll tell you, you'll see good times again. You'll get through those bad times, and you'll see good times again. And those are really good times because when you compare it to the really bad times, those are great times. That's like having chocolate on the top of your ice cream. I mean, it's just, it's the best of the best. And it's Bluebell, by the way. Best of the best. That's right. After you've seen the bottom of that thing, it makes you appreciate the good times. There's some people, I think, in the church that don't understand. They may have never seen bad times. And it's real easy for them to open their mouth up. And criticize or whatever. And that is destructive. It's destroying the fabric of a congregation. It's not good to do that kind of stuff. And if you've ever really seen bad times, you would never do that to the church of God. You would never do that to the church of Christ. Because that is God's church and we're a part of that family. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse number 9. We're laborers together with God. You're God's husbandry. You're God's building According to the grace of God which is given unto you, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you, we're all building on other people's foundation. The work that I've been involved in church-wise, I'm building on other foundations of other men or other ladies or other people that have gone on before and have laid a foundation, have worked hard, and they put up wood or stone or whatever, and I'm just building on those foundations, and so are you. You're building upon other people's labor. We plant, we water, God gives increase. And we are building on that foundation, which is Jesus Christ. We have individual responsibility to that. We talked about this this week. You're many members, but you're one body. And that means we work collectively as a body together. Even though there's many members, we, we're collectively working together to accomplish the end result of that. First Timothy chapter 3, verse number 15 tells us a little bit about what to call the house of God. But if I tarry long that thou mayest know how thou hast behaved thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. You know, there are some people that would say, well, it doesn't matter what you call the church. It's not what's... In fact, there's a song that Lisa and I have heard that says that it's not what's over the door of the church that you attend that makes you a child of God or puts you in heaven therein. I want to tell you that I get the meaning of the song in one sense, but you know, the song's wrong. It sounds good and it sounds like a neat little one-liner, but it does matter what's over the door. And let me tell you why. What if on the church here in this building, we put a sign over the door and we say, we're the church of Satan. Would it matter to you what's over the door? Yeah. So it matters what's over the door. I'll give you one that's got a ring to it. Church of Ty. Now, doesn't that have a ring to it? I mean, that's got a... And then all of a sudden you'd be going, well, I don't think so. And what did the Apostle Paul say? You've got people that say, I'm of Paul, and I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Cephas, and I'm of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? The reality is, I'm joking about it having a ring to it. I wouldn't want it to be called the Church of Ty. It's not mine. It's the Lord's Church. The Church of the Living God. It matters what the name is. Now, it's not just what's the name over the door that matters, because you can call it the Church of the Living God out there and it be a scriptural name. You can call it the Church of Jesus Christ out there and it be a scriptural name. You can call it the Body of Christ out there. You can call it the Church of God. All those would be scriptural names. And walk inside if you ain't doing Church of God sort of stuff, biblical New Testament sort of stuff, are you really the Church of God? Just because you call something something doesn't necessarily make it that way. 
So it might matter what's over the door, but at the same time, it also matters what we do. Here's some other names I'll share with you in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse number 1. Uh, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. Here's another one in Romans 16 and 16. The churches of Christ salute you. We've chosen among a lot of our congregations to use the term church of Christ. The church which belongs to Christ. Of shows ownership. It's the church which belongs to Christ. It's His. And He is the foundation of that church. And we support those efforts. We are members. We are the part of the structural aspect and the members of that structure. We're the wind bracing. We're the electrical wiring. We're the air conditioning system or whatever. We're the components of it. But He's the foundation of it and it belongs to Him. The names of God's people, the saints in Christ Jesus. We talked a little bit about that this week. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. And we use that term a lot that you're a Christian. It signifies who I follow. I'm Christ-like. I'm a follower of Christ. A disciple of Christ. I'm a learner of Christ. That's what the term disciple means. I, I learn about Christ. That's who I am. I follow Christ. And I like the term Christian. It designates who I follow. It, it, it tells a little bit about who it is that I am subject to. Who, I, who it is I listen to. I love the term. But I'd like you to notice this out here in this verse. And I'd like to ask you the question, what kind of Christians were they? And we live in a society today that says, well, I'm this kind of Christian, I'm that kind of Christian, and I'm this kind of Christian. And, or maybe they've got a prefix or a suffix or whatever. And what kind of Christians were they? They were just Christians. They, they, they were using the code book. They were using the plans. And they were building on the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they called themselves what the Bible called them. And how wonderful is that? And you know, we'd solve a ton of the religious division that we see in the world today if we would just, all of us, agree to go back to the standard, go back to the code book, go back to the plans that God has left for us, that Christ has left for us, and just use those terms. It would just solve a lot of religious division. We don't have to be a certain kind of Christian. In fact, there shouldn't be certain kinds of Christians. I'm not a Paul and Apollos and Cephas and Christ, etc., and separate the body of Christ. We're all one body. All of us that are called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, all of us that have been baptized into Christ, have been added to the Lord's church. We're His church. We're Christian people. We're not Tyite Christians, although that does have a ring. We're not a Tyite Christian. I wouldn't want you to be a Tyite Christian. I want you to be a follower of Christ. I don't mind you following me as I follow Christ, but where I'm weak or... Or find myself fall short of Christ. I don't want you following me. I want you to follow Christ. That certainly are the names God's people. And that the word of God ought to be that which we measure our faith and practice by. It ought to be the standard by which we live by. That's the plans. That's the code book. Second Timothy chapter 3. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God. is profitable for doctrine, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished to every good work. And I want to tell you the things religiously about, if you want to talk about building the Lord's house and, and being a part of that family, there is a code book to help you do that. And you can do that in any city, any country in the country or any country in the world. Matthew 16 and verse number 18, Christ founded his church. Uh, Jesus is speaking and he says, Thou art Peter upon this rock. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It's his church. He built it. It belongs to him. It began in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 2 and verse number 47 was the first time there's a scripture mentioned that people were added to the Lord's church. 
Uh, he mentioned here the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved after 3,000 people were saved and added and baptized into Christ that day. The church began in the city of Jerusalem. They were in Jerusalem when that took place. In Acts chapter 2 and verse number 5, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. This happened approximately A.D. 33. Now, there's a calendar discrepancy, so preachers sometimes might be a little bit confusing. Some will quote A.D. 30 is the year and A.D. 33 is the year. I do both. I'll be honest with you, probably more intuitively, AD 33 makes sense when you're t- teaching people, but in a fairness or in, in an effort to true honesty, uh, if you use an AD 30 date, you've got Jesus born in 4 BC, and that's counterintuitive that Jesus was born four years before his birth. Uh, but there are some calendar discrepancies but uh, uh, with the Gregorian calendar that we live under today. But that being said, if you use Jesus being born in A.D. 1, there was no such thing as an A.D. 0. A.D. means Año Domini, which means the year of our Lord. And there was no A.D. 0. You guys can Google that if you want to, but there's no such thing as an A.D. 0. It started with A.D. 1, and then Jesus was 30. When he was baptized of John, he had a three-year ministry from age 30 to 33. died on the cross in A.D. 33. To me, that's an intuitive dates that work. If he was, if we're actually counting time from his birth. But recognize there is a calendar discrepancy. So we use terms like it's approximately AD 33 and things like that. But, but this church began in AD 33 in the city of Jerusalem. That's the church I want to be a part of. I want to be the one that you read about in the New Testament in the code book that follows the code book that Jesus Christ built and it was established in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost in AD 33. Peter preached the first gospel sermon. 3,000 people obeyed the gospel that day. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse number 22. Jesus is the head of that church. He hath put all things under his feet, gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Jesus is the head of the church. Ty is not the head of the church. Your elders are not the head of the church. If you come to College Park, the elders at College Park are not the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church. He's the grand shepherd. He is the shepherd of the church. And as elders in congregations, they're under shepherds. They shepherd a congregation of people under the shepherd or the leadership of Jesus Christ himself. He is the head of of the church. There's no other man, no other office anywhere than Jesus Christ that's the head of the Lord's church. Have you made a decision to be a part of the Lord's church? You know, one of the greatest things that will help you in life is to lay everything down under the authority of Jesus. My life, my soul, my all. Everything you've got, put it under His authority. Follow His code book. And you'll see his structure within his organization. And we're just a part of it. We're components within that body of Christ. But have you given him your all? Or are you one of those peripheral people that's attacking the church from the outside? Or are you one of those people that's in the church, but, but you're really not in the church? You're peripheral. You're tangently associated with the church. I'd plead with you today. One of the best things you can do for the body of Christ is to take the roles and responsibilities and the components of the body of Christ and fulfill whatever those responsibilities are. If, it, if the scriptures say nail it every three inches, nail it every three inches. Everything you got. Do exactly what it is that the code book has asked you to do. Do it to the best of your ability. And we'll have a thriving, thriving 
body, not just in Denton, but throughout the world, that is touching the lives of people for the cause of Christ, with people working together for a common goal, and that is for the salvation of souls. May God bless you. May his countenance shine down upon you. May he bless every home, every father, every mother, every grandfather, every grandmother, every aunt, every uncle, every child, every relationship in this room today. That as we leave these two doors, we enter into a mission field. And we have a purpose for what it is we're doing. We're entering a mission field for the cause of Christ. And let's take his standards and let's share those with others. Let's share the opportunities of the church with others. And if nothing else, one thing we can do is we can be wind bracing for the church. We can be well schooled in our Bibles so that when the storms come and the winds blow and they beat upon that house, we're going to be found, we're going to be anchored to a foundation. We're going to be stiff. We're going to be secure. We're going to be, we're going to be doing exactly what it is God wants to do. And Satan's not going to have his way with this congregation. You may be here tonight with a spiritual need. Maybe you've never obeyed the gospel. Maybe you've done that, but you've fallen by the wayside. Whatever the situation may be, I promise you, your elders here tonight with open arms want you to help them and be a part of the team of people here in this place that are trying to reach the lost for the cause of Christ. And we're going to sing an invitation song. That invitation song is your opportunity to let your wishes be known to this congregation. If you'd make your way to the front bench, sit down over here on the front bench, I promise you these elders will be happy to assist you or these leaders here in this congregation be happy to help you in any spiritual need they can help you with. We pray for you tonight, plead with you tonight to come and be obedient to what the Lord wants from you and for you in your life. Won't you come while we stand and sing the song that's been selected?